An excuse involves circumstances in which people perceive that they've made mistakes and, in response to these uncomfortable situations, will say or do A. Make the mistakes seem not so bad or B. Lessen their linkages to the mistakes. People are motivated to make excuses to preserve their images of being good and in control. And these preserved images are for both the surrounding people who have witnessed the mistakes as well as the actual people who made the errors. If the excuse is effective, the giver's positive images are preserved and they can continue to perform well and interact with people just as they did before the slip-ups happened. Researchers have found that excuses are serious and generally effective coping mechanisms when used in moderation. Generally, when compared to people who are not allowed to make excuses, people who have been allowed to make successful excuses for poor performances will do better the next time they undertake the same tasks. The reasoning here is that successful excuses allow people to preserve their self-views about being effective people and thus they can go into the next performance situations and remain focused and energised to do well. These successful excusing people are to be contrasted with people who either are not allowed to make excuses or whose excuses fail. The latter are demoralised when they face the next similar performance situations and accordingly they are unlikely to do well. So if an excuse is a coping mechanism, what is it that we as teachers and students are trying to cope with? Generally speaking, the answer is that we get overwhelmed. Overwhelmed with the amount of work required as either a teacher or student to meet the daily requirements of our tasks, plus our life. According to one researcher, Dr. Peter Michelson, we believe we're bogged down by our complicated, demanding life, suffocating in endless demands and obligations. In most cases, this impression is an illusion. While we may indeed be feeling bogged down, we're unwittingly contributing to that impression. It's not the outside world or demanding circumstances that are solely responsible for producing the unpleasantness. Rather, an unresolved negative emotion inside of us is producing much of that suffering. Unconsciously, we are willing to relive an unresolved negative emotion that's associated with feeling helpless, weak, and even defeated. So what's actually happening when we get cognitive overload? This happens when our working memory, typically limited to just a handful of discrete items, fills up and we're left with nowhere to fit any new information, be that words, sounds, movement, or any other sensory inputs. Usually our working memory starts to push out items to make room for more, but it doesn't do this in a logical or systematic way, leaving us dealing with a number of inputs that are only partial or corrupted by problematic information. That's when our amygdala gets involved and raises our stress levels by producing hormones to placate or offset that awkward feeling we're experiencing. The end result, that we're all very familiar with, is that feeling of being overwhelmed and unable to properly process new information, let alone store anything of value. Dr. Tony Hansel says that when humans are overstressed, we become hasty or shut down altogether, and that plays a huge role in our behaviors. This leads to decision-making that's risky or decision avoidance altogether. So look for the signs that you're making hasty and bad decisions. This can be procrastination, like I'll tackle this later. It can be impulsivity, the old eeny, meeny, miny, mo trick or avoidance, I can't deal with this right now. And lastly, indecision, when in doubt, just say no. The first step to dealing with being overwhelmed 
is to get that stress under control. And the best way to do that is to slow down. Slow down your actions, slow down your thinking, and try to be in the present. This is where we can take some tips from Dialectical Behaviour Therapy, or DBT. The four pillars of DBT treatment are mindfulness, distress tolerance, emotional regulation, and interpersonal effectiveness. In this case, we're going to look at mindfulness and emotional regulation. Mindfulness is about being aware of and accepting what's happening in the present moment. This can help you learn to notice and accept your thoughts and feelings without judgment. In the context of DBT, mindfulness is broken down into what skills and how skills. What skills teach you what you're focusing on, which might be the present, your awareness in the present, your emotions, thoughts and sensations, separating emotions and sensations from thought. The how skills teach you how to be more mindful by balancing rational thoughts with emotions, using radical acceptance to learn to tolerate aspects of yourself as long as they aren't hurting you or others, taking effective action, using mindfulness skills regularly, and overcoming things that make mindfulness difficult, such as sleeplessness, restlessness, and doubt. Sometimes you may feel like there's no escape from your emotions, but as difficult as it might sound, it's possible to manage them with a little help. Emotion regulation skills help you learn to deal with the primary emotional reactions before they lead to a chain of distressing secondary reactions. For example, a primary emotion of anger might lead to guilt, worthlessness, shame, or even depression. Emotion regulation skills teach you to recognize emotions, overcome barriers to emotions that have positive effects, reduce vulnerability, increase emotions that have positive effects, be more mindful of emotions without judging them, expose yourself to your emotions, avoid giving in to emotional urges, and solving problems in helpful ways. To apply these tools in the real world, I've left some links to DBT information sites, as well as other resources and research that you can look into to find out more about dealing with feeling overwhelmed so you can get over those excuses in your head.